This is the To The Point Podcast. Together with our ERISA attorney, we'll explore key Affordable Care Act and trending compliance topics, all in 15 minutes or less. Now here's our host, Sarah Gillespie. All right, welcome to the Lipscomb Pitts Insurance at Higginbotham Partners Virtual Employee Benefits Workshop. To kick off the workshop, we have the president of the Employee Benefits Division at Lipscomb and Pitts, Rick McKinley, who's also a managing director. Uh, Rick, take it away. Thanks so much, Andrew. Uh, for those of you who are joining us this morning, we just uh, want to say thank you. Hope you're having a good week so far, and appreciate. We really appreciate the time that you're spending with us this morning. I did want to just do a couple of housekeeping things, just so that uh, we can get started. I want to get out of the way because I know you'll want to hear our two guests this morning. Uh, first of all. Uh, the survey, uh, we are going to leave it open for those of you who have not completed it yet. If you would like to do that, we have a mid-market survey that we have been performing for years in the Memphis and uh, Mid-South region. And I uh, want to uh, you know, open that up to you. You can actually access that uh, survey at lpbenefitssurvey.com. That's lpbenefitssurvey.com. And uh, we hope you'll do that. Uh, for those of you who are clients of ours that have joined us, we've already completed that for you. So uh, these reports of those of you who have completed the questionnaire will be sent out to you very shortly here within the next couple of weeks. But again, thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, we did wanna talk about, uh, from the standpoint, those of you who want your HRCI and SHRM credit, uh, will be given, uh, and it will be a follow-up uh, provided in an email after today. So wanted you to know that. We do plan to have at the end of the presentation a question and answer session. Uh, I think when you hear these two gentlemen that are speaking this morning, uh, it should generate a lot of uh, questions and answers toward the end uh, that you're going to enjoy the time we have. So it's my pleasure to uh, introduce a couple of very good friends of mine. We've become close uh, through a lot of battles we've had to go through over the years. And uh, we uh, really appreciate both of you guys being here. Joel is going to kick us off. And then Bob Radicke, who some of you may remember from last year, will also be here. Uh, Joel uh, is the uh, Senior Vice President uh, for Government Affairs at Council PAC. Uh, this is the Association's Political Action Committee. Uh, he has been in Washington, D.C. for many, many years. Uh, the only thing I have bad to say about Joel is he's an Ole Miss fan and went there. So, But other than that, we still love him. Uh, but, Joel, we appreciate you being here. Uh, just so that you know, Joel has been our resource for many years when we want to know what's going on in Washington, D.C. and what's going on with legislation. He has been able to give us some incredible insight and uh, has been – uh, we're glad to be able to share a resource, uh, this resource with you, but also let you know that, you know, he's one of the top lobbyists uh, in the financial service industry in Washington, D.C. So, Joel, uh, it's great to have you. And Bob, uh, Bob is the president, senior regulatory of public policy uh, analyst at Benefits Comply. Uh, Bob did live here in Memphis very briefly, originally from Minnesota, but uh and has moved back there, but Bob is, is our resource when we want to come to compliance issues. So uh, when you call us, uh, these are our two guys that have been a great resource. Bob has over 30 years of experience, and uh, 
man, we have had issues from COBRA to HIPAA to RISA to ACA. Uh, everything has been going on over the last, especially 15 years. Right. Uh, I don't know how we could have made it through without you two guys being a part of that. So we thank you for that. So, thanks. Joel, I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to hand it over to you and let you get started. And thanks for being here again. Thanks so much, Rick. Um, so grateful for this opportunity. Um, yes, I am a I'm a child of the Mid South and born in Tupelo, raised in rural West Tennessee. I came to Washington 38 years ago uh, to work for then freshman uh, representative Don Sundquist uh, from uh, from Memphis. He spent 12 years in the House. I was with him his first six, and then he was uh, Governor of Tennessee for eight years. And so um, I consider Memphis to be my home, uh, Lipscomb and Pitts to be um, one of the greatest farms in America. America, and certainly the powerhouse in the Mid-South. Uh, I'm uh, just um, enjoying uh, especially the, the best Zoom soundtrack that I've heard uh, in the last 18 months between Bill Withers and, and Otis Redding. And I'm sitting here uh, at 7th and Pennsylvania Avenue. If I just uh, were to, to peek out the corner of my office, I can barely see where they're erecting fencing up again for the anticipated protests uh, this weekend around the Capitol. So there ain't no sunshine uh, in Washington right now. So let me uh, see if I can advance these slides next, uh, just to give you a sense for who are, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful that we've got Bob on. Uh, Bob is, my, is the adult supervision on this. He understands benefits better than I've had an opportunity with Bob on, on other occasions to see him in action. He is the best of the best. Uh, I, I have uh, the portfolio of all the property casualty related issues, all the agent broker related issues, and all the benefits related issues for uh, the top brokerage firms in the country. Uh, our association has been around for 112 years uh, and uh, was, by the way, uh, chaired by uh, Johnny Pitts uh, just a couple of years ago. Uh, Rick was, uh, I was looking for a good image of Rick, but he looks so much better today. Now, he looks better than ever before. He was also a member of our sort of association within the association, the Council of Insurance uh, um, uh, Benefits Executives, uh, the CB board. So in among our 200 firms, more than 90% of commercial property casualty business insurance uh, is placed through them. And more than 70%, we estimate right now, of, of all those who have uh, employer-sponsored uh, um, health coverage uh, are represented by our member firms. Now, that may be Mercer just being a consultant for a Fortune 50, you know, uh, 50,000 life uh, plan, uh, but we have a lot at stake. And, and while two thirds of our member firms revenue, and I think this is consistent with Lipscomb and Pitts, uh, is derived from pr property casualty, uh, really since the ACA came around, I would say that, that two thirds of our efforts and energy is expended on the benefits front because that's just honestly where the um, um, all of the existential threats have been. But uh, I can't begin any presentation. This is my first opportunity, and I'm going to milk this for months uh, in webinars of, uh, you know, for everything that's going on uh, and the, the brinksmanship that's going on right now in Washington. Um, 
you know, everybody's talking about soaking the rich and 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 just the great irony of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, wearing that gown at a thirty thousand dollar a ticket uh, event at the Met Gala earlier this week. Um, I have been, as I said, 38 years in Washington. I have never uh, been in an atmosphere like this, and I've never seen um, a situation where we're facing so many cliffs. Um, you know, I know this is being recorded, but so much has just happened in the last 24 hours with the president meeting with Senators Manchin and Sinema separately with uh, Treasury Secretary Yelling imploring uh, uh, major- Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell uh, on the debt limit, uh, which is going to expire at, at the end of September. And McConnell has sworn that there will be no Republican votes for that uh, if, uh, as long as they continue on with the three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure package amid an environment, obviously, of uh, the pandemic that um, we thought we had our arms around and just didn't quite uh, so much. Um, we had five coronavirus packages that were passed on, a, you know, for all of the tumult, whatever you think about uh, the presidency in the last two years, um, for for all of the, the, the craziness last year, there were five separate coronavirus uh, pandemic response le- pieces of legislation that were all approved virtually unanimously. And then we saw the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Um, the top, the environment, as I noted, the fences going up, the environment is more toxic than ever before. Uh, I'd love to spend an hour and a half on why I think that that can improve. Uh, But I just know that um, it is D.C. is more locked up. Uh, You know, I I will reflect on this. When I first came in 1983, Howard Baker uh, from Tennessee was the Senate Majority Leader. He had um, he was going to hold the the Senate in session all night long to work on a budget in October. And then about 2 a.m., he decided that he was going to uh, uh, give up for the day. And so they went home. And about an hour later, a bomb went off just outside of the Senate chamber. And if he had not uh, dismissed the chamber, it surely would have killed a number of people. Fortunately, only one person was injured. But then the security really ramped up. Uh, Then there was another guy that attempted to do uh, sort of an underwear bomb in the House chamber, and he couldn't get it to ignite. And the tension went up even further. And then the lockdown of the Capitol after 9-11 and the reality that that plane was headed to to the Capitol, how I would give uh, Capitol tours to people and show them on the on the House floor, the bullet holes that still existed in a couple of the desks from Puerto Rican nationals that shot up the House chamber in 1959. I, I just with all of that, with all of the security, I just never could have imagined that something like January 6th could ever occur. Uh, so now we're locking back down again. The environment is extremely toxic and the and the political odds. I mean, what um, if you look back to, for example, uh, Obamacare 11 years ago, um, when Barack Obama was elected president, he had that 60 vote, that magic 60 vote number to avert any filibuster as, until Ted Kennedy died. Uh, but for a year and a half, he had a 70 vote majority in the House of Representatives. And still the ACA was just passed by that kind of a margin. Uh, here we are today 
where you have obviously senators, uh, two senators uh, that have to be on board and all the attention is on Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. I'm fans of both of them. Uh, and uh, as to whether or not they can uh, advance uh, both the hard infrastructure bill, which is a trillion dollars, and the proposed three and a half trillion dollar human infrastructure bill. Manchin has said he's not interested in anything over one and a half trillion. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And the meat, so there is no margin of error. They have to all come together. And just in the last 24 hours, you've had Senator Manchin reinforcing his view that it should not be more than one and a half trillion. You've had uh, Senator Sanders saying anything less than three and a half trillion is completely unacceptable. You've had Senator Dick Durbin, uh, number two in the leadership, saying that three and a half trillion is the floor for what they're going to do. How all this gets reconciled, I think you're really going to be looking at a November, December type of situation. And, and Nancy Pelosi, unlike the majority that she had when Obama was first elected, she can only lose three votes. And we saw just yesterday in the House Energy and Commerce Committee, a major piece of this human, this reconciliation package, this three and a half trillion dollar piece is on prescription drug reform uh, and the ability for Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Uh, that's a $700 billion hole. And the drug companies are coming unglued on it. You've probably seen the ads on this. And uh, three Democrats, voted with Republicans yesterday in the House Energy and Commerce against it. Uh, and so the mod all it takes is three uh, for, for her to not be able to uh, advance it. So, you know, context on all of this, Bob is going to be much more substantive on the benefits consequences from all of this. Um, a, a number of things that we care about, uh, but in the tax package itself, um, to date, uh, the House Ways and Means Committee has now reported the bill that would raise $2.1 trillion. Uh, the corporate rate would go to 26.5%. We all know that that will wind up, if they ultimately get a bill, that will wind up at 25%. Uh, and um, the capital gains tax uh, is much less of an increase uh, than was anticipated uh, uh, based on the Biden proposal that would have essentially doubled capital gains rates uh, at the highest end. And and uh, this would move it up to 25%. Interestingly, the House bill would make it retroactive to last Monday. Uh, so you can't try to avoid a situation of lots of sell-offs at the end of the year. Again, this is very, very dynamic. And then we've got the Medicare uh, surtax, uh, the increases to the highest rate at 39.6%. Um, Great controversy. You've got a number of Northeastern uh, members uh, that have high taxes, uh, state taxes, that say that they will not support this in the absence of relief from the provisions of the 2017 uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, for uh, limiting the deductions for state taxes. Uh, and then just a whole number of, uh, of other provisions. As I said, Last year, we passed, you know, uh, what's, what's that, three and a half trillion dollars worth of relief, and then they added the one point nine trillion beyond that. Um, you know, interesting. I, I believe Joe Biden, uh, you know, I lobbied Democrats and Republicans, got a lot of friends on both sides, uh, but I got an R by my name. Um, Biden was elected president because he was not Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, you'll recall all the major contenders, Amy, uh, Corey, um, Kamala, 
Mayor Pete, all of them sort of uh, peeling off. Joe Biden started out at like 8%. And suddenly Bernie Sanders was the, the front runner in New Hampshire. And Democratic primary voters decided that they were not going to allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And um, and so they, they went with Biden. But Bernie's been pretty happy uh, so far uh, with, um, you know, the the ambitions of of him. Um, the one thing I yeah you know, this I hope this doesn't come off as partisan. And look, you know Democrats have a good argument that Donald Trump certainly didn't care about debt. He added tons of it uh, during his four years, um, and they say we've got newfound uh, religion on this. But if time were money at a dollar per second that you were making. Uh, it would take you, I mean, just to give you a little perspective, it would, in order at $1 per second, it would take 11.6 days for you to make $1 million. At $1 per second to spend a billion dollars is 31.7 years. And yes, I've got these numbers right. To spend $1 trillion is 31,700 years. So they're talking three and a half trillion, six trillion in, in total spending on the year. So you've all heard, heard this word reconciliation. So it's all about averting the filibuster. It takes the way that Madison created government. It essentially takes 60 votes uh, to move most major legislation through the Senate, with the exception of the budget reconciliation rules that were passed decades ago that say that you only need 51 votes if it is purely a taxing and spending measure. Uh, and so, and this this gets to be, this, this means that the most important person in Washington right now is a woman that I guarantee none of you have heard of. Her name is Elizabeth McDonough. She is the parliamentarian for the Senate. And she's the one who's gonna make the decisions as to what you can or cannot do. For example, they're debating the issue of whether or not immigration reform can be shoehorned into um, the, the yeah, human infrastructure package. Uh, that will be her decision. How how do you manipulate these things that way? And this matters to us because, for example, on, on uh, if they manage to get Medicare negotiation for drug pricing, um, currently in the House at least, they're trying to also have a provision saying that private payers. Uh, would also get the benefit of whatever negotiated prices that Medicare and CMS uh, get. Big question mark, does that fit within the reconciliation rules? I know that that seems a little granular, but that's going to be the key to everything. Uh, we saw, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that after 11 years and 60 votes in the House uh, to repeal the Affordable Care Act, that now that the Supreme Court has upheld it, that it's going that Republicans can move on to a different uh, uh, areas of health reform and hopefully areas that where we can find some agreement with Democrats on shoring up the employer provided marketplace. Um, it is, um, you know, and I, I, that is the that's the number one thing for us. Preservation of the employer-provided group health insurance marketplace on the way into work this morning on NPR. Some of you may have heard it. Uh, they were talking about how in the in the past quarter, due to the extended open uh, open enrollment period and the expansions of eligibility uh, for subsidies, uh, moving away from a percentage of the poverty line to an affordability index, uh, that three million more Americans um, are taking advantage of the ACA and are joining the exchanges. And they just said, as a matter of fact, on NPR, 
that this proves this is what the Affordable Care Act was designed to do, was to make sure that people get coverage irrespective of whether or not they are covered by their employer or not. So there's a lot that we do worry about. Um, however, of all the proposals that we've seen for trillions and trillions of dollars worth of spending, you do not see the public option. And that is the thing that we think would present a existential threat. Um, and you certainly don't see Bernie's Medicare for all. And the big debate that's going on is, um, oh, uh, how did I, I got a backup there, uh, lost a bunch. Uh, but the big debate is uh, is 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 going to be on uh, expansion of Medicare itself. Um, in Medicare, um, there was you know Bernie the the, the House resolution uh, budget resolution passed uh, shortly before the August break did include a provision that said that they wanted to move the Medicare eligibility down to sixty. Um, it's interesting among my own member firms. I see I hear from a lot of employers uh, that. Um, you know, that wouldn't be a bad idea because so much of the high cost, particularly in the self-funded plans, uh, are among those that are 60 and older. Uh, but I think it's a very slippery slope. And so um, it, it's clear that they they don't have the dollars uh, that are going to be necessary to move that eligibility down to 60. However, uh, and still has an enormous price tag, adding uh, dental, vision, and um, and hearing um, benefits. With dental costing hundreds of billions of dollars over the eight uh, the the ten year time window, uh, they're struggling to see if they can they can present that. So you know what I'm going to do? I, I I'm going to I've lost a bunch of the slides, but um, uh, I'm going to give you a real quick uh, political uh, sensation and then uh, move over to Mr. Radecki. Um, history tells us that whenever a president is of one party, as well as the leaders of the, the Senate majority leader and the House speaker are all of one party, uh, that the party out of power, um, despite itself, uh, does very well in the midterm elections. The Senate map next year, it's very challenging for Republicans. There are almost twice as many uh, Republican held seats uh, that are up, uh, but most of them are in places like uh, you can see on that map, like Oklahoma, like uh, Louisiana, like Arkansas, uh, where there's, uh, you know, it's not, you know, Democrats are not particularly competitive uh, in those kinds of jurisdictions. And so that's going to be tough. On the other hand, the question of whether or not Kevin McCarthy is going to be the House Speaker and unseat Pelosi, um, you know, she had um, she lost the Democratic majority uh, before with Republicans winning a net of 50 seats. A lot of it has to do with the selection reform bill, H.R. 1. Uh, you'll hear a lot of debate about that as to whether or not they're going to do a limited ch uh, change in the filibuster rules to push that through. But unless they are uh, they're able to do a hat trick and and pass that legislation, Republicans are going to be in charge of redistricting in most jurisdictions. And so uh, that tells us that Republicans are going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, I'm just, I will, I will leave you on this. Uh, I, mean, I highly commend, I'm a Boehner guy, uh, and uh, his memoir that just came out, it's the most honest political memoir I've ever, ever seen. And, um, and I just commend it to all of you. Uh, I know that um, 
Um, you know, I, it's sort of bad news and, and worse news, uh, you know, in, in the environment that we're in right now um, with with uh, political volatility, the, the anger. But uh, I will and, but I will, I will leave you with this, this final little story. I know it's, you can't pull off a joke on, on Zoom, but I happen to be a human encyclopedia of congressional sex scandals. And, and some <laughs> of you might remember uh, this guy in 1974. His name was Wilbur Mills, and he was the chair chairman from Arkansas. He was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and he got caught uh, skinny dipping with a stripper in the tidal basin. And um, and the story goes that on the night that he was arrested, and this part is actually true, uh, he said uh, the police shine the lights on him at the tidal basin, and he said, officer, this looks much worse than it is uh, in reality. In fact, my lady friend here is a dear friend of the families, my families, and my wife would have been here with us, except she's at home nurse and a broken leg. So anyway, they arrest him. They give him one phone call. He calls the staffer, tells the staffer he's got to go break the news to Mrs. Mills. In the middle of the night, staffer knocks on the door, says, Ms. Mills, I got some bad news and I got some worse news. Well, what's the bad news? Well, bad news is they just fished Chairman Mills out of the title base and he was drunk. He was naked. He was with an Argentinian stripper named Fanny Fox. He's been arrested. <laughs> going to be all over the TVs and newspapers tomorrow, and his career has been ruined. She's like, my God, son, if if that's the bad news, what could possibly be worse? He says, well, the worst news is I'm here to break your leg. Now, I tell you that story, and that's an old joke for me, but I tell you that story because only a few weeks ago, at the age of 86 of natural causes, Fanny Fox passed away. So oh, she's so with that, Bob, I think it's all yours. Or Rick, you want to revert back or do any questions, any anything else? Sarah, Sarah, before you before you transition, I can't I can't miss the opportunity. I think the best line I've heard in a Zoom call for a long time is Joel claiming to be a human encyclopedia of congressional sex scandals. That's that's a that's a title that I've never heard on any meeting like this. So. <laughs> Well, stick around. I can tell you about a few that are that are that are current and and probably soon to come. Well, thanks so much, Joel. That was a perfect color commentary to add to all the crazy things going on. We really appreciate having you. Um, before we transition over to Bob, I just wanted to remind everyone that the chat and the Q and A is open. Go ahead if you've got anything you want to submit. We are going to have the Q&A session at the end, but you can go ahead and submit things now. I am monitoring that box. All right, Bob, we will transition on over to you. Now you can hear me. Sarah, can you see my introductory slide and make sure I do it right? Yes, I can. Okay, great. Thanks for the introduction, Sarah. Joel, thanks for that. I, just to uh, point out to everybody kind of the, the different roles Joel and I play. I mean, Joel works really hard on behalf of our industry and employers, you know, working with our Congress, our regulators, the executive branch, trying to influence and impact legislation before it's passed to try to get it done in ways. And I'm exactly the opposite. What we do as a regulatory and public policy analyst is we look at the stuff after it's passed and try to figure out how to help employers um, deal with it. So I'm rarely involved or never involved in in, in the hard work Joel does in, in trying to convince our legislators and, and regulators to do the right thing. Once it gets all figured out and passed, then my team 
uh, looks at the rules and regulations and tries to interpret them and help employers uh, deal with them. Joel, you set me up on this one. I, I knew you just were, got a big kick out of AOC's dress because we talked about that yesterday. So I couldn't resist. I, I wanted to remind you that uh, interesting garb is not just um, uh, happen on the Democratic side of the aisle. We all remember on January 6th, there was some rather interesting costumes uh, worn in our Capitol by some of the uh, uh, Trump supporters that showed up that day. So I just thought an image that would be really remarkable is to see this dude and AOC in the same room. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll move on from that. Uh, um, so my job is to, again, we're just going to spend the next few minutes um, talking about some of the things as employers you got to pay attention to that either are happening now or are coming down the pipe. One of the things we do with Rick and uh, the Lipscomb uh, team, benefits team, is try to watch what's coming that will really affect your employee benefits plan. And that's going to be most of my conversation today. But one thing that we're living right now, I just want to remind you, we're almost to the end of the COBRA subsidy um, the COBRA subsidy ends and COBRA periods this month. Most of that means somebody could get a subsidy for September because most COBRA coverage runs from the first to the end of the month. But there could be people whose coverage, maybe COBRA coverage runs from the middle of month that will get their free coverage through, you know, October 15th in my example. But this month is the last month of free COBRA. Um, I know most of you work with COBRA administrators, but you guys make sure that they send out that end of uh, subsidy notice that has to go out. Um, the, the thing I want to point about the end of subsidy notice is it's, it's really important because it tells people that they can continue on COBRA if they want to keep paying it, but it also tells them they can go buy individual health insurance if they qualify. They, they changed the rules this year, so if someone's COBRA subsidy is ending, they can go through a special enrollment period and buy individual health insurance. And I want to just say to the employers in the call, that's a good thing for you. Um, if people are on COBRA, especially your self-funded plans, we want to make sure they understand that they can move over to the individual market if it's a better buy for them because we want them off our plan, right? Um, we don't, we, it's better if COBRA continues just go away uh, from a cost perspective. So we want to help them understand that they can uh, switch to the subsidy uh, to the individual market. And more importantly about the individual market, and, and I, I'm going to just really quickly, uh, I think a lot of employers didn't pay attention to this. The, the federal subsidies for people that are buying individual health insurance were increased dramatically when the American Rescue Plan was passed. These numbers aren't going to mean anything to you. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this up here just to explain how the structure works. When someone, but I've got a slide, the next slide that'll make it much more clear what the impact is. When someone goes and buys individual health insurance, what they pay for that individual health insurance premium has nothing to do with what the premium of the plan actually is. What they pay for a silver plan is based on a calculation that's based on their household income and where that puts them in the federal poverty level. So when you go buy individual health insurance, if you qualify for those subsidies you've heard about, they look at your income, they look at where that puts you in the federal poverty level, and that's what determines what you pay. And the percentage of what you pay for your health insurance under this arrangement was changed dramatically by the American Rescue Plan, um, and you pay a lot less for individual health insurance right now if you qualify for these subsidies than you used to. Um, but it was only enforced for two years, for 2021 and next year, 2022. Joel, you said that they are absolutely considering making this change in subsidy permanent as part of the legislation that's being discussed right now. It's an expensive piece of the legislation, but this could go permanent. The reason I'm telling you about this is this will have an impact on employers because it's going to really change the conversation for some employers about their employees who are lower income, figuring out that they can get these individual health insurance plans at a cost that we 
kind of can't compete with on the employer side of this of the scale. Let me show you my example. So federal poverty level is based on your income, your household size. So if you look at my little chart here, that's going to come up here. Um, let's take somebody that makes $40,000 a year. That's their household income. A $40,000 a year person that's single puts them at the 313% of federal poverty level. A $40,000 a year person has got a family of four obviously puts them at a much lower federal poverty level because $40,000 for a family of four isn't go as far as if you're single, right? So here's how it works. Um, if you've got a $40,000 person, and, and again, that's household income. That's not necessarily what you pay them. That's total household income. What they're going to pay for a silver plan, and by a silver plan on the exchange, the, the, the average cost around the country, this has nothing to do with what a silver plan costs for you for your age. This is just a flat average across the country is about 353 bucks. What a, a family, what a, a single person of four pays for that silver plan is 211 because it's just the calculation I just showed you off their household income. Okay, look at this. A family for the $40,000 household income family of four, that silver plan on the average would cost that family 1200 bucks. They pay $4 a month. That's not a typo. Because they're at the 150% of federal poverty level, they would pay $4 a month for the silver plan for the entire family. Now, $40,000 household income for family of four is pretty pretty is down there pretty low, right? Look at the 60,000, 60,000 household income for a family four, they pay $158 for that family coverage. Now, again, I'm just want to get this on the table. We're watching it at Lipscomb and Pitts. We're watching how this might affect us going forward. If these prices are made permanent, if these subsidies are made permanent, there's going to be some serious conversations going forward about especially small employers that aren't subject to the employer mandate, whether um, offering coverage as a group or as an individual policies makes more sense for my, 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 in, my lower income employees. It really, I think, is potential upend that conversation. So, Joel, we'll be watching if this is made permanent or not. And then we'll be watching how this impacts employer decisions around, especially family coverage going forward, as, uh, especially for our small group market. So just something to watch going forward. It could be significant. The other thing you're hearing a lot about are the health cost transparency rules. Um, there is so much here. I tried to put uh, a lot. Uh, Joel, you mentioned all the things that have been going on in, in general around um, uh, uh, around. Uh, uh, the tax policy and everything else. We've been busy, haven't we, in the employee benefits world. We've had a lot thrown us over the last few years. You've been very busy if that's your job. Um, but the one I'm gonna talk about is there's been a real movement. And what, this is, I will make this statement. This is one of the few things going on. I, I agree with Joel 100%. The, the partisanship in Washington is at epic proportions. It's not, uh, never seen before. But this is one of the few initiatives in government right now that has bipartisan support. The, the hospital transparency rules and the uh, health plan transparency rules were both promulgated by the Trump administration, and they're both being worked on and forwarded by the Biden administration. There's broad, and I would love when we get to the question and answer session, Joel, I, if you're if you're listening and taking notes here, I would love you to comment on whether I'm I'm I'm, I'm on on point here. But there's pretty broad bipartisan support in exposing what we pay for health care and making it more transparent, and that's what this is about. Okay, so there's a number of initiatives. There's regulations that came out in November. 20, the Consolidated Appropriation Act that was passed last December, one of the big bills met, uh, uh, Joel mentioned, um, included some stuff. And so I'm going to go through really quickly what each one of these um, are and try to pontificate to you why it matters to you as an employer. Okay. The first one is the, um, the hospital one. Again, not to speak to you on the call. Not, I don't know how many hospitals we have on the call, probably not very many. But if you're an employer, this is an interesting first step. 
Um, last January, hospitals were supposed to be starting to release a data file that basically exposed what they charged different payers, different insurance companies, uh, 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 different uh, administrators, that kind of stuff. Um, because all, we all know that um, what insurance companies pay and what hospitals charge varies dramatically depending on what kind of provider contract we're living under or what kind of insurance policy we have. And so beginning last January, hospitals were supposed to start disclosing um, their, their charges on a much more detailed level than it's ever been done before. The problem is um, the hospital has been rather slow to comply with this rule because the penalty currently is only $300 a day. And this is a huge deal, exposing what we charge different people at this level of detail. There are some hospital executives out there that really don't want to do this. And so hospitals have been very slow to comply and the $300 a day penalty isn't enough to really um, make any difference. So um, we've started getting files. We're starting to see them, uh, but it's been slow coming. If you haven't seen it yet, you really got your get your hands on the New York Times article that was written a few weeks ago. I think if you just Google why hospitals and carriers don't want you to know what they pay or charge for services, you'll find it. And it started looking at the first hospital files that have been coming out and really showed some remarkable, remarkable differences in what a hospital charges, Cigna versus United or a fully insured plan versus a self-insured plan, or even within a, a particular uh, carrier, what they charge different, uh, uh, different types of contracts that they have. So um, this is the first shot over the bow of us actually starting to get a, a real look at what the healthcare industry charges for their services. It's all been secret until recently, and, and we're going to get to start to see it. The next step is that the carriers and the payers, when I say payer, I mean the health insurance company or the TPA that's paying the claims, okay? Um, the payer that's paying the provider um, is going to need to publish their files that tell what they pay different providers based on their agreements. By the way, in all my slides, you're going to see this uh, a date that's crossed out and then a new date that's in red. That's because just a couple of weeks ago, we thought we knew when this was all going to potentially happen. And the regulators came out with a, 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 some guidance that pushed most of this out. Honestly, they had to. The industry wasn't ready to comply with most of these rules, so they didn't really have a choice. But the, the, the um, enforcement of this stuff has been pushed out, so the deadlines have changed. And that's why you see the, the red dates uh, there. So now starting next July, in about eight months, eight, nine months, whatever it is, um, our carriers and our payers are supposed to publish a file that shows what they charge, I'm sorry, what they pay different providers or what they pay if it's an out-of-network claim, what their allowed charges are. Now think about this for a minute, everybody. If last January, the hospitals were supposed to start publishing this big data file that showed what they charged all the payers, and next July, the payers are supposed to start publishing this big data file that shows what they pay all the hospitals and providers. If we get a chance to look at those two huge data files, they should kind of line up, shouldn't they? And we should, for the first time, begin to actually know what the real costs, what the real payments, what the real deals are between the payers and the providers. Um, I think that what this is really going to do, Rick, you and I have talked about this, is it's going to give Rick, your team and your benefits team, a powerful new way to help employers change the way they buy group health insurance. The balance of power is going to shift away from the providers and the insurance companies who used to keep everything secret to the smart advisors and counselors who will now be able to look at 
and pay attention to this data and help us understand really what stuff costs depending on where we go and who we use. This is gonna take some time. Uh, don't think about opening one of those files up in July and reading it. You will get nothing out of it. It's just a gigantic data file. We'll need tools and things to be able to do this. And that's actually even part of the law. The law requires the payers, again, the insurance companies, the TPAs, to develop some cost comparison tools. Now, these are not gonna be available at the earliest until January of 2023, about a year and a half from now. But Rick, you and I have predicted there's gonna be an industry that pops up. Sure, the payer is going to have to have their own price comparison tools out there for us to look at, but I think there's going to be an entire industry, a data analytics industry pops up that's going to give us a chance to look at this stuff even outside of the tools that are required for our care that our carriers and TPAs are going to be developing. Um, a couple of other things, if you hear about it, that employers should be thinking about. There was a new report that we were going to have to send into the government on, on, on prescription drug costs. Um, that was going to be something that both the employer and the uh, if the carrier or the TPA would have to be involved with, depending uh, how the rules work out. That has been delayed indefinitely. So that was supposed to go into effect the end of December, just a couple months from now. It's not. Uh, so the earliest I could imagine this going into effect would be, you know, next, like beginning of 2023, but we'll see. That's been delayed effectively so uh, indefinitely until we get more guidance. So we don't have to worry about doing that one yet, but it's coming. Um, and this one really fascinates me. This one is um, the, the, the congressional and regulatory attempt to kind of change what we know when we go to the doctor. So what, what's going to ha happen theoretically in the future, and I say theoretically because this is a heavy lift, is there is a rule going forward that when we go to the doctor, the provider is going to have to provide us a good faith estimate of what we're going to get is going to cost. And what a concept, huh? Going to the doctor and they're actually going to tell us in advance what it's going to cost. So what is, what's interesting about that is under the rules, the provider is supposed to make that good faith estimate and send that to your carrier or your TPA. And then your carrier or your TPA is supposed to take that provider's cost estimate, run it through their systems and give you an advanced EOB before you go to the doctor instead of the EOBs we get now that tell us what we paid after the fact, right? Um, and so theoretically... When these rules are in place, the doctor will be advancing what they think they're going to charge, or hospital what they think they're going to charge for a service. The, the insurance company is going to run that through their systems and send me an EOB basically saying, babe, Bob, based on your deductible, your copay, how much deductible you got left, what the doctor said they're going to charge, here's what we think this is going to cost you. Now, that's going to be an estimate, of course, by definition, because I might go to the doctor someplace else, my deductible might change, whatever. But that would be really interesting, wouldn't it, if we got this in advance. Now, this was, again, supposed to go with the regular legislation in effect this January and a few months from now. There is no way in hell the industry was ready to do this. There's a lot of technology that has to happen and be built to be able to do this. And so the regulators just by, really, like I said, didn't have any choice, have delayed enforcement. This is going to be more guidance that comes out. Uh, if, I want, if you're going to make me go out on a limb, I would be shocked if we get these advanced EOBs even by 2023. That would be incredible if we're getting them already a year and a half from now. I think it might even be longer uh, before we get that. So a lot's going on. And again, before I change, before I move on to, to uh, surprise billing, I really just 
I'm going to say what I said at the beginning. For years, we've been trying to argue it would be a better idea to um, really know what we pay for healthcare. An analogy I've used for years is if if I, I'm particularly fond of red wine, Rick knows that. Um, sorry, Rick, maybe I shouldn't have, I should have exposed that. Um, uh, Rick and I have spent some time checking out some red wine bottles in our past. Um, so when if the red if the wine industry worked like the healthcare industry, you would go to your wine store, you would ask the guy behind the counter, "Hey, I want a really good bottle of Cabernet. That I'm going to make some steak tonight. What would go nice with that?" And he would bring you to the wall, and he'd pick out a bottle and he'd give it to you, and you'd go home. You'd drink the bottle of wine, and then you'd call him up and you'd say, "Hey, that was a really good bottle of wine. What do I owe you?" And he would say, "Oh, that bottle of wine's two thousand dollars." And you would say, oh, I, I didn't want a $2,000 bottle of wine. He would say, hey, you said you wanted a good bottle of Cabernet. It was a good bottle of Cabernet. That's how the healthcare industry works. And this has the potential to turn that on its ear, that we'll actually know what we're going to pay for most, if not all, of, of the health care we receive. That just is fun. It's a, it's a game changer in the entire industry. And if it works, we'll change how employers buy health insurance, how they operate their group health plans. I think I'm, I'm, I, I don't think I am making a mountain out of a molehill. I think it has the potential of being that big. All right, surprise billing. Um, this is happening January 1st. You've all been hearing about this. We all heard the horror stories. You know, um, the one that really irked me uh, was there was an entire industry that popped up um, with rent-a-docs, we would call them. You know, hospitals have trouble um, uh, staffing emergency rooms. And so there was an industry that popped up that was venture capital funded that would um, have a bunch of doctors, emergency room doctors, and they would go to hospitals and they would say, okay, we'll, we'll rent you our emergency room doc. You can use you know, our emergency room, just our docs to staff your emergency rooms, but they have to be treated as on a network so that when the emergency happened, that doctor could turn around and, and, and it would be paid on a network, but then they could turn around and balance bill uh, the, the patient that was rolled into the emergency room. Uh, that is one of the services that's going to go away. Uh, so the, the, the surprise billing protections you've been reading about only affect these three types of out-of-network services. Those rented docs in emergency rooms, air ambulance, and then out-of-network providers in an in-network facility. You know, I, I, I love this one because usually I'm talking hypothetically, but you know, you've all heard the story, right? That you go to an in-network hospital and the radiologist, um, you know, that takes your X-ray turns out to be out of network, and and you get balanced billed. Well, Sarah, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you can turn your screen on, but I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Um, Sarah is one of the few people I know in the universe that actually did this. Um, when she had her baby, she went into the hospital. Now, listen, I, I still laugh every time I think about this, Sarah. You go into the hospital, the anesthesia, you're about to have a baby. The anesthesiologist is going to come and he's about to give you your the gas, you know, to help you relax. And you asked him, you asked him if he was in network or not. You actually did that. It wasn't the gas, it was the epidural. And I said, stop, stop. Are you contracted with Cigna? <laughs> Before I was letting him do it, because I know the stories. I know all about hidden providers. You are the only person at hospital that entire year that stopped a procedure mid-procedure and asked if the guy was in network or not. So good, good on you. Congratulations for that. But most people aren't Sarah, and you know they weren't going to say, "Hey, before you gas me, are you in network?" Right. So um, that so that was a real problem, and that's part of what's going to be protected now too. Okay. So how it works is the the payer again. Remember the payer is the 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 
insurance company or the TPA is going to come up with, okay, out of network doc. I mean, these things still exist, but the way it's going to get paid now is the payer is going to make an offer based on a couple different things. I'm not going to go into detail uh, today, but there, there's a structure for what the payer is going to offer um, the, the out of network provider, but the provider might not like it. So the provider might say, no, that's not enough. So if the payer and the provider can't agree what they should be paid, it goes to an independent dispute resolution process. And it's kind of like a big game of poker. What they do is the payer, the insurance company says, we're willing to pay this much. The doctor, the provider says, no, we're, will, we're willing to take this much. They both put the number on the table and then the arbiter picks which one. And so it forces the two to put competitive numbers on the table, if you think about it, right? Right, if the doctor puts a huge stupid number out there, I wanna be paid this much, they're probably gonna lose that. So it's gonna be really interesting to see how that works. But it more, most importantly for your members is that whole resolution of payment goes on in the background, but your members protected. The claim is gonna get paid as if it's in network and then the doctor can't balance bill them. No matter what happens in the payment resolution process, if the doctor loses, they can't go back and balance bill the patient. So the patient is kind of um, taken out of the middle of this out of network negotiation process. So I think we all agree that that's a good thing that, that our members and our employees aren't gonna get balanced billed by these folks anymore, but it's gonna be interesting to see how it works and how well it works. But that all goes into effect for plan years starting January 1st. Yeah, um, so again, we're gonna, I, I know I probably got quite a few questions, but I wanna make sure I wrap up at the, at the top of the hour here, let's 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 end up with just talking about what's going on with with employers and 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 your strategy. You're thinking about about um, vaccines and mandates. Obviously, this was big news just last Thursday. Everything kind of changed with President Biden's new initiative to require vaccinations. I'll speak to that in just a minute. But before I do, I want to just answer the big questions around vaccinations. And the first one is simply, you know, can an employer mandate an employee vaccination? And the answer is simply yes. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of political and, and legal things to think about, um, uh, but the, the EEOC has made it clear that employers can. And this was, this was before last Thursday. The, the, it was very clear from a legal perspective that employers, if they chose to, could mandate employee vaccinations. The other question we would often get is could an employer um, either exclude unvaccinated employees from their health plan or limit coverage, for example, for COVID-related claims? And the answer to that we think is no. Uh, there are uh, non-discrimination rules that prohibit you from discriminating against your employees based on health status or health status factors, the way it's termed. Um, and we think being vaccinated or not is a factor that you cannot discriminate. So your employees are still eligible for your health plan if they're eligible, that you still have to pay claims if they have claims. Um, uh, we don't think you can uh, uh, change that. And then the last one we're working a lot with, and, and Rick and Sarah and your team has been working a lot with, is employers are, are coming up with all kinds of ideas on, on giving some kind of of incentive, and I'll speak to that in more more detail in just a minute. But but yeah, absolutely, employers are giving incentives to try to encourage their employees to be vaccinated. Um, and so before last Friday, the situation, as I mentioned, was that the EEOC had made clear, very clear. Last December, the EEOC had made very clear that employers could um, re require their employees to be vaccinated. They had to still. Uh, follow the rules under the ADA. If an employee couldn't get vaccinated due to a health condition, we had to consider giving them accommodation. We had to consider employees' religious objections, although that has turned out to be not as hard as we thought. Um, 
And they just, the EOC importantly confirmed that just asking your employee if they're vaccinated, having them prove to you whether they're vaccinated is not asking a medical question or treating them medically. So it doesn't trigger uh, many of the ADA requirements that are triggered if, 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 if you're actually doing medical testing and things like that. There has been a ton of activity in states, of course. Uh, the state laws have uh, and, and initiatives have been no pun intended all over the map. Um, and so if you're an employer that's thinking about a mandate, our plea to you is very simple. You really need to get good employment law advice to help you navigate what is a very fluid and rapidly changing situation around mandates. The high level answer is yes, you can do it, but there's a lot of things you gotta be careful you do right. And you also have to pay attention to the situations uh, for employment law in different states. And then last Thursday night, some you know things changed a little bit. Um, so before we get into this, I am going to make a plea to you. If you're about to type in questions about how do you count a hundred, how do you handle the paid leave, all the different things about President Biden's announcement last week, hold tight for a minute. I've got the next slide is going to say outstanding questions that we need answered by the regulators. So there's a lot of stuff we don't know yet. All that happened last Thursday was the president instructed regulatory entities and agencies to develop rules. So nothing actually changed when he gave the speech. We're in the process now of the regulatory agencies developing the rules to do what he's asked them to do. So there is a lot more to come over the next few weeks. But in the first slide or in the first line the one that most of you care about is we've all heard that osha is about to release a new emergency temporary standard that's going to apply to all employers with more than 100 employees and no we don't know how to count that 100 yet that will be in the standard that will be defined in the standard and that order will say you have to ensure that your employees are either vaccinated or subject to weekly covid 19 testing just saying that sentence makes me think of about 400 questions, okay? There's a lot that we're gonna have to figure out how this is gonna work. The second big part of this standard will be that employers will have to provide paid time off to their employees to go get the vaccine and to recover if they have some of those side effects. So that's the big picture. Again, next slide I'm gonna go through. I know what some of your questions are that you're thinking about, but there were two other big um, parts of this announcement that affect different kinds of employers. If you're a federal contractor, the rules are different. If you're a federal contractor, the rules are actually stricter. There's no actual option for employees to get weekly, uh, opt out for weekly testing. Federal contractors are gonna have to um, actually get their employees vaccinated uh, uh, basically in the next 75 days or 75 days after the rules are released. Supposedly we're gonna get rules on these next week. And then healthcare providers are subject to an even different set of rules. Um, healthcare providers uh, and um, uh, facilities, healthcare facilities are also going to be, if they receive federal funding and most healthcare facilities receive federal funding because they treat Medicaid patients or Medicare patients, a healthcare facility that receives federal funding is gonna have to get their employees vaccinated. This one's interesting because this already exists for nursing homes. And so this rule is just being expanded from what all is already in place for nursing home employees, and it will go into effect for hospitals, surgery centers, um, uh, entities like that. So again, depending on what kind of employer you are, you may be subject to different rules. So I know, um, and <laughs> even though I begged, I know questions probably came flying in there, um, but here's, I know what you're thinking. Um, 
When are we going to know the details? Um, OSHA has said, or Department of Labor has said that they plan on issuing the rules in the next few weeks. I don't know if that's next week or two weeks or three weeks from now. Um, we will need to know the, uh, they did a quick um, webinar or call actually, and they said they will let us know exactly how to count the 100 employees. Um, they did make the statement that the rule might not apply to employees that are working remotely. This is gonna be interesting. So if employees already work remotely and don't have to go into a facility or an office to do their job, they might not be subject to the mandate. We'll see what, how that plays out. Um, the paid leave requirement, the Department of Labor did say that employers will be able to use paid leave that they already offer if, if you do pay PTO or sick leave, and then and you can force your employees to use that to get the vaccination. We don't know what the rule is gonna say if they've already used up all their paid leave or, or things like that, we'll have to get more of that. And this weekly testing one is the one that really has me losing some sleep at night. Because it sounds like, okay, that's great. You know, if the employee doesn't want to get vaccinated, they can just do weekly testing. But just the administrative um, work that having a weekly testing program for employees that aren't vaccinated would be, uh, feels like a really big job to me for our HR employee benefits departments. I mean, if they have to be tested weekly, what does that mean if they don't get tested? What does that mean if they um, miss their test this week? Can they come to work? And boy, we got a lot of questions how that weekly testing program is gonna work. I actually think that some employers are gonna go more aggressive than what is required by the mandates. We already heard that, we did a study uh, we did a survey in a webinar recently, and over 30% of the employers in the webinar we did in August, this is before Biden's announcement, were planning to roll out a vaccine mandate of their own. Um, and so I think there's a significant number of employers, and I'm, I don't know the number, that will may even put a more, uh, a more aggressive policies in place even than is required uh, by the mandate. But this is a crazy one. Um, we will be following up, Sarah, you know, and Rick, you know, we're going to be following up uh, once the rules come out and helping employers understand uh, how to navigate what's going to be a really interesting time around this mandate. All right. We used to talk uh, before the mandate announcement by the Biden administration, we would talk a lot about incentives. Um, are people still going to do um, incentives, even with this mandate in place. I, I think employers are, remember this, this mandate only applies to employers with more than a hundred or a hundred or more, I'm sorry. And so smaller employers might still want to provide some kind of incentives to their employees to get vaccinated. These, these OSHA emergency stand, uh, uh, declarations are only enforced for six months. So this might all change again in six months. And I think some employers are looking at and we're watching and, and saying this, this COVID thing might be a long-term thing. This might not be something that we just, you know, walk out of and look back on next year, we're unfortunately learning. And so I think some employers are going to look at vaccination incentives and surcharges, kind of like they've looked at flu shots in the past. Should this be part of our bigger long-term employee strategy? So I think we're still going to have a lot of conversations around incentives. Um, we're hearing lots of creativity from employers about the incentives that they're thinking about. Um, the one that I checked there is probably the most common one we're hearing where, you know, employers are the Delta Airlines thing. When it hit the New York Times, our phones rang off the hook, right? Delta Airlines said they're going to charge their employees 200 bucks more to be in the health insurance plan um, if they're not vaccinated. We're hearing about good old cash discounts, gift cards, all kinds of things that employers are thinking about doing. But I think the most common one uh, is that kind of changing the contribution on the on the health plan, if you're whether you're vaccinated or not, and and again, not taking sides, uh, whether you agree with it or not. The the one thing I think that attracts employers 
to the health plan incentive, the, the changing the contribution, is there's a logic behind it that's easy to explain. We've had smoker surcharges or tobacco, non-tobacco incentives on our health plans for years, right? We've known for years that our smokers cost our health plan more than our non-smokers. So employers have had these surcharges in place. You're gonna pay more for our health insurance if you smoke. Um, I think employers are saying, well, I can make the same argument now with vaccinations. We now know that our unvaccinated employees are gonna get sick more often than our vaccinated employees are gonna get sick. So they're gonna cost my health insurance plan more. And so whether people agree, I'm not saying employees are gonna like it, but it's easy to explain why you're putting an incentive in that because it's directly tied to the costs you're going to experience over the next couple of years on your health plan. If you're going to do that, you're going to follow the HIPAA wellness rules. If you're going to put a set incentive or surcharge in place, again, I'm with, uh, to, to stay with our time here, I'm not going to go through these in detail. If you're thinking about an incentive or surcharge, again, think about it uh, kind of strategically, just like you think about a smoking surcharge, okay? It's it's not exactly the same, but it's the same concept. And so you need to lean on your team at Lipscomb and Pitts to help you make sure you set that up properly, that it's set up under your wellness program and we do it right. So with that, we got to the top of the hour. I'm sorry, I ran over a couple minutes, but I suspect there may be a few questions or Sarah, if you want either Joel or I to go back over anything we talked about, but let's open it up to the group and see what they want to dive deeper into. Yeah, thanks so much, Bob. Um, so um, I failed to introduce myself before. Most of you probably know me, but I'm the Director of Compliance at Lipscomb and Pitt. So, um, okay, to jump into a couple of questions here. Joel, did you, uh, or are you aware, or do you, have anything to say about any potential healthcare provisions that might be in this 3.5 trillion spending package. I had seen something in subtitle, subtext about um, ACA affordability possibly made permanent at eight and a half versus indexed every year. That's the only one I'm familiar about though, or familiar with. Absolutely, uh, and as Bob had noted as well, that um, the, the provision as part of the rescue plan, it's only a two year provision. And so the two big ticket items that I think every Democrat would say is on their top five list uh, of what they wanna do through this reconciliation package is extend the childcare uh, tax credits, that $300 a month per child, uh, credit, um, uh, make that permanent, or at least for the next decade, uh, and the extension of the new permanent non-indexed 8.5% affordability test level. There are other things, though, uh, that I think employers should be concerned about that I didn't talk about earlier. Uh, there are uh, one of the versions that's come through the House, and again, very combustible situation. This is going to, I have a feeling you're going to see this thing fail and get restarted um, on multiple occasions here in the next uh, couple of months or so. But there are new civil penalties for mental health parity uh, in the version of the legislation that was passed by the Education and the Labor Committee. The employer community is very concerned about this, which would establish the Department of Labor's authority to levy penalties against um, health insurers and plan sponsors. Um, you know, it's a, it's a provider participation and uh, issue. Uh, additionally, um, some other expansion of the tax credits uh, and and the potential for some more of these um, uh, 226J, I think they're called tax penalty letters to employers. Um, 
temporary reprieve of an employer mandate liability for up to 138% of the poverty uh, line during the transition to the new Medicaid expansion. Uh, a lot more incentives. We've got some states represented here that have not yet expanded uh, uh, Medicaid. Uh, Democrats want to uh, push uh, that. Uh, and then a lot of stuff on, on drug pricing data. So there, yes, there's a lot on this. And, and I think Rick also uh, asked just what bigger picture uh, is is going to be up on healthcare. I will say, you know, the good news from our standpoint is that um, you're you're not seeing an assault on employer sponsored plans. Uh, we have worries, and Bob did a good job of laying them out. Uh, that um, uh, that employers are going to uh, they're they're not doing anybody any favors, and they, and the Biden administration is also trying to change the ACA requirement that says that if you have equal or superior coverage for your employer, you're not eligible for subsidies through the exchanges. Uh, but the good news is no public option that is being proposed. It would be enormously expensive in any event. Um, and the good news as well, to date, though I always worry about this, I always, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And um, historically, uh, we've had trouble from both the right and the left uh, on the issue of um, the uh, tax exemption uh, from taxation for uh, employee benefits. I was going to ask you about that one. It's kind of the Paul Ryan purist view of consumer-driven health care, that notion that until we as Americans start asking the docs how much, uh, still, Sarah, by the way, was the guy in the Cigna plan? (laughs) (laughs) So you did have to network here, so I was covered. (laughs) That epidural. But, but it's that, and I get, I get the theology on this, this whole notion that until we as Americans start to ask our doc, so how how much is this uh, MRI you're sending me across the hallway going to cost as opposed to what I can go shop for four or five miles from now? I totally get that. Uh, but if you think that we've still got a problem in America today with 25, 30 million uninsured Americans 11 years after the passage of the ACA, just blow up the employer provided marketplace and and take away that tax credit. The reason I'm paranoid on it is because it is the number one tax expenditure. Right. In other words, it is you get the largest amount. It's it's the one tax break in the code that you get the largest amount of money for for repealing. Uh, number two is 401k. Uh, and so, but it's way ahead of the home mortgage interest deduction. It's way ahead of charitable contributions. And so that's the holy grail to us. Historically, we've had bigger problems with from the right on this. Yeah. Than from the left. Uh, but I always remain vigilant on this because Ron Wyden, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, is strenuously uh, in support of eliminating the employer exception. So that's that's a big issue as well. And then more broadly, uh, to try to answer Rick's questions, I'd like to think that on prescription drug pricing, particularly with respect to uh, specialty drugs, notwithstanding the clout of the pharmaceutical industry on the very floor that I'm on at 701 Pennsylvania Avenue, I've got three major pharmaceutical companies with armies of lobbyists, uh, and they're spending tens of millions of dollars right now to to avoid this Medicare uh, negotiation scheme regime. Um, But I'd like to think that there would be some room for PBM transparency uh, for, um, you know, I'll, I'll just give one quick example. 
So my son, he's 24 years old, he has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, really lousy disease. Um, all these kids, he's alive today because he's, uh, all these kids are jacked up on corticosteroids, prednisone, nicolapil, been out there for 50 years, um, has terrible side effects. Um, we stopped counting the number of bones that he has broken as a result of taking the steroids, which are keeping him alive. About 11, 12 years ago, I anecdotally heard about a uh, alternative corticosteroid that was available through Europe for a different condition that apparently did just as good as prednisone with far fewer side effects. So I had the ability to, you know, properly, it was legal for me to get it shipped over from London. I paid, I'm blessed to have the resources. I paid six, 7,000 bucks a year for it. A small biotech and Chicago decides, well, this is interesting. It's an existing drug. Uh, let's let's do some clinical trials on this, see if it works. And sure enough, it turned out pristine. And um, they then got FDA approval. They then legally shut down my ability to import it. Uh, this is great. Now, thousands of kids are going to get the right drug that has been approved by the FDA that is going to keep them alive and keep them with far fewer side effects than prednisone. Price tag? $88,000 a year. Um, you know, and I can give you both sides of this, but something needs to be done on that. And then my final comment to Rick's point is I do hope Republicans along the way um, never had an articulation of what they would replace Obamacare with. Right. You know? They would always say association health plans, buying across state borders, medical liability reform. You know, I'm for all of that. But that is not a comprehensive alternative to Obamacare that addresses the issue of pre-existing conditions, restrictions, and the core issue of if you like your insurance, you, do you get to keep it? Yep. Good points. Hey, Joel, can I just follow up with one with you um, on that IRS? You mentioned the 226J. I'm worried about that one because the IRS has not been aggressively enforcing the employer mandate, you know, for our large employers. They've been they've been tweaking our reporting and looking at our reporting and stuff, but they really haven't. Is, is the legislation pushing them to more aggressively enforce that? Is that what that's about? The, the, the coalition uh, that we're a part of to maintain uh, essentially it's the coalition against mm -hmm. the public option. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Flag this is something that that would encourage greater enforcement on this. Interesting. It was that it's a revenue raiser. Yeah, it uh, is. And again, you know, we've seen some employers get the big the, the letters with these massive penalties, but they've been able to work them through. Yes. Um, it's we've never addressed, you know, the relief from those reporting requirements. There's just not been aggressive enforcement. Okay. Thank you. Sarah, other questions you got? Uh, yeah, Joe, I was just going to follow up on one thing that you had said. You briefly mentioned that there does not seem to be any public option included in this spending bill or what we're looking at. I've heard about state public options. Do you have any comment on that? Uh, good, good observation. It's a, it's really is a blue state phenomenon. The state of Washington is the uh, only one that has uh, adopted uh, a, a public option, a state public option. And you've got less. I, I could be wrong on this. And Bob, you may know, but I think it's only about a third of the state, uh, the plans that are opting into this to date. Uh, in the meantime, we're seeing initiatives for such a thing. Uh, you know, we saw in Colorado back in 2016, uh, a ballot initiative 
that would create sort of a Medicare for all. And it went down. We work with the, uh, the Colorado Chamber and a lot of other business organizations and was defeated 80-20. But now they're tr- Colorado's trying their own version. And I guess the big kahuna on this is going to be the debate that's expected next year uh, in New York. Um, they came close to debating it, uh, you know, from a cost perspective, this is going to be uh, interesting to watch. But yes, I think the battle on public options has switched from the federal to the state arena. I don't think in the red states that are largely represented here, we're going to be seeing much on that. Uh, but obviously, um, we're all impacted by what uh, what the other states are doing. Sure, sure. Um, OK, Bob, I have a question for you on um all this transparency stuff, because, you know, there are a lot of parties who don't want all of this made public knowledge. So are there any chances that we've got the delays in date? Are there any chances that it can be further delayed by the fact that there's some pretty powerful sources here who would love for it not to happen? And then, um, you know, can the consumer really truly get transparency? Yeah, that's a great question. And this actually kind of rolls over to both Joel's and my world, you know, the rules now are our law and final regulations. So I wasn't talking about proposed things they're just discussing, uh, you know, the transparency and coverage rules are final rules and the consolidated appropriation act is statute. You know, so these are real now they exist and they're, and, and for them to go away means to unwind them means to either pass new legislation to rescind things that are already there or regulators doing a 180. That's harder than, you know, Joel getting involved in a proposed temporary rule and helping, you know, tweak it before it gets finalized. We're, we're, we're down the road with these things. And so to change them would be significant. But Joel and I are both old enough to remember Section 89. <laughs> so, so many on the club, no idea what I'm talking about. Way back a long time ago, Congress passed an incredibly complex tax benefits rule that was so nuts that everybody just looked at it and said, this just can't work. And the Congress ended up just throwing the whole thing out. So stranger things have happened, but I'm not predicting that. I think there's such bipartisan support. This is going to be messy. That it's going to be about enforcement. I mean, they're going to have to do something to hospitals more than find them $300 a day for the hospitals that don't want to publish these data files. So um, how that's going to change going forward. But then I also think and, and is that some hospitals aren't publishing them. The reason the New York Times could write the article I mentioned is there's a few hospitals that have pulled back the covers. It's all out there. And so I think there will also be some industry and peer pressure and us as employers will put pressure on the hospitals and the carriers to show us that stuff. So other than just the regulatory action, I, I, I know it's being recorded and then you can go back and tell me how wrong I was when we look at it in a couple of years, but I think this has momentum. I think we're gonna know a lot about who pays who what in a couple of years. And, um, you know, there was even a major portion of this omnibus uh, budget um, act that was passed last December that goes that's implemented starting on December 27th of this year that affects the brokerage industry. And so essentially they've taken the form 5500 reporting requirements for broker compensation and made that are now retrospective for ERISA plans and broadened them and made them prospective. This gets tricky, you know, and I get it from a hospital. I was on the board of uh, Children's National Medical Center for several years. And, and it's, not, it's not easy to pull back the covers on all this stuff. And 
we're hey, complicated brokerage world that how you know a lot of the 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 compensation that brokers receive um, is prospective and it's based on uh, volume of business. It's based on quality of business. It's based on claims. And so it's difficult to identify uh, prospectively all your sources. That's just in our brokerage space. Now we're working, we we accepted those provisions. We negotiated with Congress. Uh, we made them less onerous. We're asking for there to be staged enforcement on it so that people can get used to a regime. We're doing a toolkit for all of our members so that they'll all be in good compliance on it. What I'm hoping it won't wind up being, I hope it will be pulling back the covers for, for throughout the system. And I'm particularly sensitive in the PBM space because I think that that's where so much could be unraveled through full transparency. But what I worry about is, you know, three weeks ago, I went to close on a, uh, my wife and I bought a second house down on the Redneck Riviera, um, L.A., lower Alabama. And, uh, you know, the closing documents are constitute hundreds of pages. And I just hope that it does, doesn't become such dense bureaucratic stuff that it's not going to be useful for employers to help drive down costs. Yeah. Fine. So continuing a little bit uh, with this this transparency and, and the other things that are part of the regulation. So these advanced EOBs and pricing, we've got a team member who was on the carrier side for many years, and it's hard to fathom for her, even having been there, how do they operationalize something like that? The advanced EOBs, putting that together and all of that. So, uh, yeah. Well, when when I when I mentioned that, you know, I, I, I won't put the slides back up. But remember, th those things were originally in the legislation and regulations scheduled to go into effect January 1st in like three months from now. I mean, all of us in the industry looked at January 1st, 2022 and said, no way, not, not, not even not even no way not not possible so the regulators you know realize that the technology is going to be put in place the you know the things that will have to be built to make sure these things are, are done is is going to be heavy lifting and maybe and there's going to be a lot of cost to it uh, joe i don't know if you remember there was the the original cost estimate that came out with the very first round of the proposed transparency rules you know put some silly little number on it then they took comments for a few months and the final rules came out and the number had gone from well we, we think this is going to cost the industry you know $200 million to, we think it's going to cost them $200 billion or something. It was just, it was just, the, the difference was just uh, incredible because they just, yeah, it's, it's just a fact. So yeah, Rusty's saying, you know, it's probably 2035 before we say it. <laughs> that, might be, that might be the case, but, but here's, but, but let me back up a step that, that, that advanced EOB and that whole thing. So I get my EOB and what I think it's going to cost me to go to the doctor to get my whatever. That's one piece, but I think for our industry and for employers, these data files getting released is a bigger, more strategic thing. Because once the data is out there, there will be smart people that will build technologies that can analyze that data and help us make good decisions about where we buy our healthcare. Now, we may never get an advanced EOB that does much good for us, but I think there'll be smart people in business and the, and, and the self-insured business community is gonna be all over this. Because if we actually get tools that help us know that, well, if our employees go for these services over here and we're going to save a million dollars, that's going to make a difference. So just the release of these data files to me is the biggest potential strategic changer in how we buy healthcare. Whether we get those advanced DOBs or not, that might be fun and we'll see. And Rusty, you might be right. It might be 2023 before we see. 
Okay, so switching topics a little bit, uh, vaccines. So when you're talking about, so you had mentioned that the conversation on surcharges and incentives is still valid because this so. is um, supposedly going to be a temporary requirement for six right. months, the Biden right. uh, requirement. So that being the case, um, that there's a question on va- vaccine surcharge and ACA affordability and how that works. The yeah, good question. I have a, a strong opinion about that one, Julie. So the rules, if we look at the rules, is when we when we set affordability for our health plan, we all know we have to use the non-wellness rate. This has nothing to do with a vaccine, right? Sarah, you and I have been dealing with this for years, right? If you've been putting wellness programs in your employer that somebody gets a 10% discount on their contribution if they do biometric testing and blah, blah whatever. When I determine my plan affordability, I have to use the what I call the non-wellness rate. That's the number we use, the plan cost we use. And that is the same case for a vaccine surcharge or incentive. If you put a, and again, for us compliance people, surcharge, I don't care if you say, I'm giving a discount if you're vaccinated, or I'm charging you more if you're not, it's the same thing. It's a, you know, it's, it's a surcharge or an incentive. Um, you use the higher number, the non-vaccinated number to turn your plan affordability. So employers are worried about that. I am a little bit of a black sheep when it comes to this affordability question, because here's what I remind employers. If you offer unaffordable coverage to an employee, it's only based on the single cost, not the family cost. It's just based on the single cost of the plan. If you offer unaffordable coverage to your employee, the only way you get fined is if that employee drops your coverage, goes and buys individual health insurance on the exchange and gets that tax credit I talked about. Okay, and the penalty this year, if Sarah does that, if Sarah drops Lipscomb and Pitt's health insurance because it's unaffordable and goes and buys her own individual policy and gets tax credit, we get penalized. I think it's three hundred and thirty-eight bucks this year a month, three hundred thirty-three, three hundred thirty-eight bucks a month. Okay, what does it cost us if Sarah, as an employer, enrolls in our health plan? What do we pay for her health insurance if she enrolls? Two hundred, three hundred. 400, what, you know, and you have to weigh those two together. I think employers are uh, too afraid of paying the penalty for unaffordable health insurance. When they do the math, it may have little or no actual financial impact on them. So it's really, it's really more of a financial calculation than it is a penalty. I, you know, I, I've, I've worked with employers where it was smarter to raise what employees paid a little bit, let it be unaffordable for 20 or 30 employees. And if five of them go down and buy insurance on the individual market, get subsidized, whoop de doo it cost me a couple bucks. So you need to do that financial analysis before you worry too much about whether your plan is unaffordable or not, and whether that's gonna make you think whether you wanna do a vaccine surcharge or not. So. Matt, just about that conversation about affordability one way or the other on your plan or paying the penalty. When 226J letters come to me, that's one of the things that I talk to the employer about. You know, there would have been a cost to have this person on your plan. So just one of those those conversations. Okay, I have one more um, vaccine question. So some of the surcharges are happening now. Um, I know we kind of just talked a minute ago about maybe doing it at the end of of this six month requirement, but if they're doing it now and it's the middle of a plan year, Mm. does that create a qualifying event? Yeah, yeah, so employers are always worried about, okay, we're gonna rate Delta Airlines. They said, hey, we're gonna charge 200 bucks more if you're not vaccinated. Didn't do it on the plan year, they did it in the middle of the year. What the rules do is you're not required to let employees make changes. You can just implement that and you can say, you, you still got to stick with you at. An employer can, if they do that, 
open up a special enrollment and let people make changes. Okay. It's, it's allowed, but they're not required to. And Sarah, if I don't say this, I know you'll yell at me and then um, uh, say, I missed the most important part. If you're going to let employees make changes after doing that, you need to work with your carrier. You need to work with Sarah and the Lipscomb and team and make sure your carrier is going to allow those changes in the middle of the plan year too, because that's not always the case. So there's two parts. You put a surcharge in place, you can just say, sorry, Sarah, you're, you're paying 200 bucks more now. End of story. Done. Yeah. Or if you want to allow people to make changes, you can, but then work with your Lipscomb team to make sure that you work that out with your carrier or even your, your stop loss carriers. Right. I think the, the questions that I had gotten as well, but doesn't this fall under the significant cost change, which is a mid-year qualifying event? You can. And I think the, the same is still true, though, that you can, employers do have the right to make a change in cost mid-year without allowing for election changes within the plan. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, I, did, I did notice, uh, Sarah, that Jennifer asked a question regarding the Medicare uh, buy-in. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Go ahead. I, you know, I'm sure that, uh, Jennifer, that there are some studies on this. I, I know I've seen some in the past. I couldn't cite them offhand. But to me, it's, it really is just common sense. And it's really what Bob and I are talking about throughout all of this, which is the massive from when it comes to governmental intervention, when it comes to subsidies, when it comes to the employer tax exception, the public option, everything that's on the table in this human infrastructure plan, um, it, it really comes down to the cost shift. And uh, as and we see, you know, a national average, something like 358% in many jurisdictions where uh, what private in, uh, industry is paying as compared to Medicare negotiated rates. And so, um, you know, on the drug pricing issue, sure, we're fine. Let the let the government uh, negotiate prices, uh, save hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't know that I completely buy into the drug companies' arguments that this is going to depress um, uh, research and development, uh, and that uh, you know when I look at us paying. 250% for many of the top 50 uh, drugs compared to European countries. Uh, I'm all for it, but private industry needs to be able to have that as, as well, or we're just gonna continue to see that, that gap rise. And so I think it's just, I, I think it's self-evident that if you, you bring those numbers down, but look, if they're not gonna get uh, Medicare at 60 in this first year of the Biden presidency with uh, Democratic majorities in both houses by the slimmest of po all possible margins, they're not going to get it later. So I, I'm not losing a lot of sleep over that right now. Uh, what I am losing sleep about is just the creep, creep, creep. I mean, look, we all know, you know, what all the all the complexity of American healthcare and the costs associated with it. It's the cost of obesity, of, of chronic illness, of end of life issues, uh, overutilization of specialists, of self-referrals to specialists. It's the cost of defensive medicine. All of these are very, very difficult things. And if you think about the ACA that was designed to uh, to address these issues, the one piece of the major piece that was a cost containment 
issue in the ACA was the independent advisory, a payments advisory committee that was going to be established, uh, CMS and HHS. Uh, this was the so-called death panels. Uh, and they, the Obama administration never even attempted to form it. So if you look at the ACA, you know, from the standpoint of 20, 25 million Americans that received uh, health insurance coverage as a result of the ACA, that's undeniable. Uh, but it's sort of a false summit. Uh, and, and, and from from there, all of these, the political complexity, there's just not a lot of political courage to address any of those real stuff factors. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, Joel. You know, ACA got a lot of people insurance, changed how we operate insurance. It was not a I, I've often said over the years, it was not a health care reform bill. That is such a, a silly way to describe the ACA. It changed the insurance industry. It changed the payment industry. It changed who got health care. It didn't do anything of substance. Maybe the maybe the uh, accountable care organizations that got a little religion, but it, it was not a health care reform. It was a health insurance and a coverage play. Indeed. Before I uh, turn it over to Rick for closing comments, do you, but either of you have any closing thoughts or, or comments on what may be the next big thing for employer-sponsored health plans to focus on? Well, I'm, I'm, if, if I could go first on this, I'm just, you know, I, on the one hand, I share all of Rusty's cynicism about implementation, but I also share Bob's optimism about transparency being, uh, you know, being a major step forward. And, and, and now we do have the tools in place and it's going to be painful, but I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that that will be the best thing that uh, that employers will be able to, to see, hopefully sooner rather than later. And, I, and, I, and, I, and you know, that's what I would have said, too. Right. I've been, I've been, I've been that's what half of what I talked about was I I think all of us agree as advisors, Rick, your team as a buyer, if I'm an employer of a large self-funded plan to have a better understanding of what the hell I'm paying is going to be a good thing. It's, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be hard. It's going to go. It's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster to get there. But I want to know what I'm paying. Great comments, guys. Uh, so all of you who are in attendance today, you can see why we love these two, two gentlemen. They have just been a great resource for us. Uh, and Bob, Joel, thank you uh, for spending time. I know you guys are, are really busy uh, and I appreciate your input here. Uh, for those of you who are in attendance, again, thank you uh, for attending, especially our clients. Never want to forget to thank you for your business, and we appreciate your participation in today's uh, seminar. So with that, we are going to sign off and hope everyone has a great rest of the week. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bob.